Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Father, may it be that as we look at your word this morning, that you would help us to love you with all our heart and mind and strength and soul. And we pray that you help us to love our neighbours as ourselves. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. What's your life's passion? What's your life's passion? I'll tell you a quick story. We've just come back from camping for a couple of weeks down on the south coast. And it reminded me of something of mine that is a great passion. Uh, when I was about 16, we were camping very close to where I was, uh, where we were just this week. And we were camping this beautiful campsite, and I saw this guy uh, playing a guitar next to me. Uh, so he was sitting around a campfire and was just there strumming away on a guitar. Now, for years, my parents had tried to encourage me to take up a musical instrument. My sisters played the piano, my other sister played the flute, and that all seemed super boring to me, and I was like, I don't want to learn the musical instruments. I just thought I wasn't very musical. By watching this man, uh, it struck a chord with me, right? And I said to myself, by next year, that'll be me. That'll be me. So while we were there, I asked my parents to buy me a guitar. My birthday's in February, just you can mental note that. I asked my parents to buy me a guitar, and so they did, and I just started playing. It was the time where the internet was just, you know, starting to take root, so there were all these songs on the internet I could find, and so I just played Time of Your Life by Green Day over and over again. It's only three chords, you can play it, and I, I looked up more and more songs, and so my playing the guitar fueled my passion for music, and my passion for music fueled my playing of the guitar. Now, the great thing about passion is that someone else can be better than you at whatever you're doing, but it still can be a passion. Like, Nathan's way better on the guitar than I am, but I still love it because it brings me great joy. It's a passion. I spent hours and hours in my bedroom learning new songs instead of studying because, well, Green Day was more interesting to me than my maths homework. But playing the guitar, while it's a passion of mine, is not my life's passion. Your life's passion is something that's bigger than yourself that you're willing to suffer for, to sacrifice for. I'll say that again. Your life's passion is something bigger than yourself that you're willing to suffer for or to sacrifice for. That word passion is coming to our English language from the Latin word passio, right? Which just means to suffer. It's what you're willing to give yourself to, even if it means dying for it. And that's why passion makes things great. Passion drives scientists to find new, new cures to dreaded diseases. Passion is what equips athletes to break records and get to the Olympics. Passion is what motivates politicians to reach the top job, no matter the cost. But so often we're passionate about everything but God. Passionate about sport. Who's your team? Passionate about the movies. Passionate about travel. How many places can I see before I die? Passionate about gardening. Passionate about poetry. Now, I, when I was Googling this just this week, I stumbled across this book, which I think must have been published in Ireland, because <laughs> who has a passion for potatoes? I mean, those potatoes do look very nice, right? 
And I, can th- I like the title on the front here. It says, I can think of no finer chef to give potatoes its deserved place in gastronomy than Paul Gaylor. I don't know who Paul Gaylor is, but he clearly has a passion for potatoes. <laughs> what a strange thing to have a passion for. There was a book published quite a while ago by uh, a lady named Dorothy Sayers. And it was a book on the seven deadly sins. And the final deadly sin is one that we don't often hear about very much. It's sloth. Now, you know the rest of the other deadly sins, right? You know, it's pride and envy and greed and gluttony and all those kind of things. But the last one we don't hear about too much, that word sloth, right? I think of uh, the the movie Zootopia. There's this really slow-moving creature. Just sloths just are very slow. But that's actually not what's behind that word, right? Sloth is really just passionlessness. Passionlessness. That is, having nothing bigger than your own interests. Having nothing bigger than your own interests. Nothing bigger than your own ego. Nothing that you die for or sacrifice for. Listen to what she says about passionlessness or this uh, final uh, seven deadly sin. She says, Passionlessness is the accomplice of the other deadly sins and is their worst punishment. It's the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. Now, what she goes on to say is that it's possible to look really passionate about about a bunch of things, to look really busy and do all sorts of things, and even to, to be like, you know, really bound up in lots of different things, but there's nothing that you're willing to sacrifice for because you're just doing it for your own means. Nothing bigger than yourself. And you know what? If you don't have something that's bigger than yourself, then all of your energy, all of your passions, well, they're just being fueled by selfishness, by all the other seven deadly sins. And here's the problem with that. It simply won't last. It simply won't last. And what I want to explore this morning is Uh, Four things that kill our passion for God in the Christian life. And also how to get rid of them. The second passage that we just read would be really useful if you had that open. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll look at four passion killers and how to get rid of them. So have a look with me. This is passion killer number one. A love of others' approval. Have a look, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. You see, part of the way that we would lose our passion for God is to care about what others think more than what God thinks of us. And Paul says if you care, about more, care more about what others think of you than what God's, God thinks of you, well, in this little passage, he says you'll end up with a forked tongue. You'll cheat and you'll lie and you'll bend the truth so it sounds so sweet, but in the end, it's just false. And that's especially true when it comes to God's word and sharing it, which is what Paul the Apostle was all on about. If you crave the approval of others more than the approval of God, you'll end up like the Pharisees. You might have heard that famous passage in Matthew, Matthew chapter 21 where some of the Pharisees come up and, and try and test Jesus. 
they come up to him and they, as he was teaching and they say, by what authority do you do these things, miracles and teachings? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus, knowing their hearts, answered them. He said, I'll ask you also one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. And he said to them, the baptism of John. From where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why didn't you believe in him? But if we say from man, well, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, the Pharisees are not stupid, right? These are sharp guys. They're the religious elite. And they're saying, if we say this, then he'll trap us by saying you didn't believe in him. But we don't want to be trapped because of what others will think of us. They love the approval of others rather than the approval of God. But the other alternative is to, to get stoned because the, people, because the people think that John was a prophet. And so what do they do? The answer to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. He's saying, I won't talk to you because you don't want to hear what I have to say. And those Pharisees crave the approval of others rather than the approval of God. But by contrast, if you crave the approval of God, you're passionate for him and for his glory, then come what may, well, you won't lose heart. Do you notice that's what Paul says there in that first verse? We do not lose heart. And that phrase sort of acts like bookends to this passage. It happens in verse 1 and in verse 16. You'll notice he repeats the same phrase. We do not lose heart. And Paul was originally speaking of himself and the other apostles in that first group who were commissioned to share this news of Jesus. They're commissioned to share the gospel of Jesus. But the same also applies to us, right? That if we crave the approval of God, we're passionate for him and his glory, then we too will not lose heart. So Paul and the apostles, they've been going around sharing the good news of Jesus with all all sorts of people, commending the truth of God, but then... How do you explain the fact that there are so many who haven't yet believed? Let's keep reading and have a look at verse 3 and 4 with me. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is passion killer number two, and that is loving God darkness you see paul gives a clear reason why people's minds are still veiled remember uh, sorry kind of think in your minds of a really thick heavy veil so, so that you can't see someone through it right kind of you can't see through it or out of it and paul says here that the god of this world he's talking about satan in this passage right the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel that's interesting isn't it there's a story I heard a little while ago about a power outage in a massive big shopping mall in the US. The whole shopping centre's lights went out for a couple of minutes. And you know in shopping centres how there's very few windows. Uh, In fact, in this shopping centre there were no windows. And so just picture it is pitch black. After the lights came back on, people went on their merry way. But in almost every shop in that shopping centre... They reported a significant rise in thefts during the time of that power outage. Millions of dollars of stock was lost 
stole it. Now, there are two options that I think could have happened in this story. One is that Superman was laying a little low on cash and decided that he saw this you know, power outage and he'd come through and he just swiped all this stuff from a bunch of different stores and hoped that no one would notice. Or option two is that darkness lurks closer in the human heart than we might like to admit. All we lack is opportunity. Now, the rest of those seven deadly sins might rise up quicker than we might expect, you know, greed or envy or lust or gluttony or pride. Paul writes about being blinded here, being blinded and seeing the light. And and Paul's own conversion is really not very far from the the surface here. Do Do you remember the story of Paul? As he's making his way to the city of Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus on the road. And he's blinded by the light of, light of Christ. And up until this point, Paul has been a Christian killer, if you like, authorizing the, the stoning of, of those who were trying to preach the, the gospel of Jesus. And yet, despite all of his Jewish pedigree, Paul, well, his mind was darkened. His mind was veiled to the truth of Christ. And yet, the risen Lord Jesus shines a light into, into Paul's heart and Paul's life. He rips the veil from his mind and his heart, so Paul moves from persecuting Christians to passionately proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And for many of us here, the same is true for you, as it was for Paul. You see, when we confess the darkness, we've done that today, When we confess the darkness of our own sin and come to Christ, then his light fills us, doesn't it? The veil is lifted. But I do want to say at the start of this year that it's possible that the thing that's killing your passion for God are the dark secrets that lurk in your heart. Now, I don't know what they are. The things that you wish that no one else knew about the things that you wish God didn't know about. But he does. God sees everything and knows everything, and he does care about what you do with your life. But here's the beautiful thing about God. If God can forgive someone like Paul, someone who was passionately trying to get rid of Christians, if God can forgive someone like that, then he can forgive someone like you too. Would you come back to God at the start of this year and reset? Reset your passion by God by trusting again in his goodness and in his grace. You see, the same power that was at work in Paul's life, bringing him from death to life, is the same power at work in anyone who trusts in Jesus. What about passion killer number three? A love of self. Have a look at verse five with me. Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us, give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 1947, there was a little boy who was throwing rocks in a a cave up on a rugged cliff just near the Dead Sea. And as he threw the rocks, 
I love throwing rocks, right? As he threw the rocks, he heard the sound of something shattering, which is also a good sound when you're throwing rocks. It turned out that as he threw the rocks, that it smashed open some clay pots, some, some pots that just so happened to have the greatest literary treasure ever found, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because inside those pots were hundreds and hundreds of biblical texts. And those texts were dated more than a thousand years earlier than any previously available. This incredible treasury found in clay pots. In the ancient world, the clay pot was sort of like a plastic bag. You know, something to be discarded. It was nothing. And you know what? God has done this with the gospel of Jesus. That light that has shone in our hearts, he's put it in clay pots. Clay pots like Paul and like us. And the gospel is the treasure. And as I was reading this just this week, I was thinking to myself, why has God put the message of the gospel in jars of clay? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense if you were to put the gospel kind of up on a pedestal? Wouldn't it be a better marketing strategy to get the most attractive, good-looking celebrities and give them the gospel and so everyone can look at them and be like, wow, look at that. Why doesn't God do it like that? Now, I've got to say I felt this pressure personally. Uh, Somehow I've got to make the, the message of Jesus more palatable to modern sensibilities, to make it more attractive. I felt that pressure. But that would be to make me the treasure instead of the gospel the treasure. You see, God has put the treasure of his word, his gospel, his good news in jars of clay like us. What does Paul say at the end of that verse 7 there? He says to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not, not us. And in verse 5, he says, Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, because we're just the servants. Servants of someone far greater. It reminds us that it's not about you and it's not about me, but it's about Jesus and his salvation. I want preacher put it like this on the screen. He says, it's not that Jesus isn't awesome. It's not that his grace isn't amazing. It's not that the cross isn't marvelous. But we won't have eyes to see it until we've been displaced. Until we've been knocked off the throne of our tiny self-kingdoms. Now Paul knows that all too well. We're not going to look at these verses in detail, but in verses 8 through to 12, Paul goes on to describe his experience as someone who's like a plastic bag. Someone who's like a jar of clay, tossed about and broken and crushed, but not driven to despair. He was broken so that the treasure of the gospel might shine out. But Paul has a bigger perspective. And that leads us to our fourth passion killer, living for this world alone. I want you to think over the page. Have a look with me at verse 14. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. It says, they've been speaking the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And he knows this. He says, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Notice this phrase again. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what Paul's saying here is that this, this last thing that will kill your passion is living for this world alone, for thinking that this is all that there is. But how do you overcome that? How do you reset your passion for God and his glory in this world? Well, the answer for Paul and for us is by remembering Jesus' passion for you. His suffering for you. See, when Jesus stretched out his hands and they put those nails through his hands into the cross, Jesus was able to get off, wasn't he? He's the powerful son of God. But in essence, Jesus is saying, I would rather die than live without you. I would rather die than live without you. That's how passionate I am about you. I made you. I love you. I would die than, rather die than live without you. That's the passion that Jesus has for you, the passion that God has for you. And what's more, that the God who raised Jesus from the dead guarantees that if we've trusted in him, that he will bring us into his glorious presence. And that means that we have a secure future. It's the message of life and hope that Paul was so passionate about. Do you know what the result is that more and more and more people increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God? And so Paul says we do not lose heart. Even if we see our outer self wasting away, even if we see the effects of aging and decay, it's not the the end of the story because God's spirit is bringing out an inward, bringing about an inward renewal, an increasing renewal day by day. And it's through that renewal, the inward renewal, that we anticipate this weight of glory. Now maybe that at the start of this year, you feel weighed down and afflicted. I don't know what's going on for you uh, in all the life circumstances. Maybe it's been a really terrible start to the year for you. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul says, though our outer self is wasting our way, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he's not saying that your problems or afflictions, the troubles in your life are nothing, that they don't amount to anything. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that compared to the eternal glory that awaits, in comparison to that eternal glory, the troubles that you're going through now are momentary and light. Now, some of you may have heard the story of Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. At age 38, he became President Nixon's special counsel. That's pretty good, right? see him there on the left with President Nixon. He had the ear and the confidence of the most powerful man on the planet. But Charles Colson was ruthless. He became known as Nixon's hatchet man, who would dispose of unwanted characters. He would do almost anything for the president. But after uh, some troubling times, after some of the Watergate scandal was happening in the early 1970s, 
Colson had been sacked from the Nixon administration and he went back, to, went to back to his law practice. And as he was speaking with one of his clients who happened to be a Christian, he offered him to read the Bible with him and to share the gospel with him and he did that. And in 1973, Chuck Colson became a Christian, someone who trusted in Jesus. But the Watergate scandal was growing, growing in intensity. There was court cases and all that kind of stuff. But because of his newfound faith, he refused to lie about some other convictions to take an early plea deal. And he eventually pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice. And so in 1974, Chuck Colson served a prison sentence of seven months. And he was the first member of the Nixon administration to serve, to be incarcerated for those Watergate-related incidents. But while Chuck Colson was in prison, it sparked an incredible life change for him. You see, his passion for God led him to make an impact right there in the prison. People from all over the place would come and talk to him. Uh, They would want to hear about how it is that he found such joy that even though he was incarcerated, he never felt more free. And eventually, after he was released, he founded the non-profit ministry Prison Fellowship and then another ministry, Prison Fellowship International, to focus on helping those who have been put into prison to know the Christian worldview, to know the truth about Jesus. You see, Chuck Colson had learned not to look for the approval of others, but of God. He learned to love the light of God rather than the darkness of his own selfish ambition. He learned that, he needed, that God needed to be the center of his life and not him. And that a passion, a passion for Christ was not, sorry, the passion of Christ, Jesus' passion, was not just a good example, but the gateway to a life of joy and purpose that can never be put out. And so my prayer at the start of this year for you and for myself is that we would find that same passion. We would find the passion that Paul had, the passion for God and for his glory. So why don't you join me as I pray to that end. Father, along with Paul, we pray that you would help us to not be slothful in zeal, but to be fervent in spirit, to serve the Lord with passion. Father, we pray that you would help us to delight in you and your goodness. And at the start of this new year, we pray that you'd help us uh, to remember that passion, that first passion of the Lord Jesus, the one who was put there on the cross because he loves us so much. And Father, motivated by his, his passion, would we be passionate for you and for your glory in this world? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St. Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.